This is a reading from Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, as well as Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Good morning and welcome again to Trinity Heights virtual service. Hope you're enjoying your summer so far. Well, today we are in Galatians and we're in our fourth part of our series in Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. Now, when we first start reading Galatians, it seems as though Paul is trying to establish the authenticity and therefore the authority of his ministry. He starts out by saying, Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Paul then starts to give them some biography. He tells them the story of his advancement in Judaism before his conversion. He talks about how he came to follow Christ, his journey to Arabia, and how for many years he didn't meet with any church leaders. And yet when he finally went to Jerusalem, the church's most esteemed leaders recognize the legitimacy of Paul's leadership in the church. He says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach amongst the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. And then he says in verse nine, James, Cephas and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. He's saying, look, what I have to tell you in regards to the gospel is not stuff I made up off the top of my head. It's not even something that someone else told me. It is something that God had revealed to me. And this has been confirmed by the pillars in the church, those recognized as leaders. So Paul is giving us his life story, it seems, in order to establish the authenticity and the authority of his service, his own service and his own leadership within the church. But there is another reason why he's telling these stories. It's not just in order to present himself as a legitimate leader in the church. And he's not just trying to persuade them to listen to what he has to say next. These first two chapters 
in which he tells these particular stories one after the other is, is not simply a long lead up to the main argument that we'll eventually get to in chapter three after he's done storytelling. At the end of chapter two, we, we don't have to say, okay, Paul, we believe you are who you say you are. Now, now get to your point. He's already been making his point through the story of his own life. He's already started hammering out the central theme that, of his argument that runs throughout this letter. Through these stories, he's already been confronting their false gospel with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What you'll notice is that each story he tells in the first couple of chapters starts with this feature of people being divided, people at odds with each other, people being left out and excluded. And each story travels in the same direction, away from division toward unity, away from, uh, from enmity toward solidarity, away from exclusion towards inclusion. Every story he tells in this abbreviated biography has that same movement. Even the first story I mentioned a moment ago about the apostles recognizing that he, he, sent to the, he is sent to the Gentiles and, and Peter is sent to the Jews uh, and has, the, has this realization that, yes, we might be taking to, talking to two different audiences, but it's God at work, the same God at work in both audiences. So I'll take three more stories, he tells. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and were, was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. This passage will probably remind us of Philippians, where Paul also outlines how he dug into his Jewish identity. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So Paul at this point is talking about his national identity. Remember, remember why? Paul is part of an occupied nation who had been occupied and then conquered and then conquered again, first by the Assyrians, then by the Babylonians, the Greeks, and now they were brutalized by the Romans. Will they be exiled again? Or will they just be wiped out altogether? Or, or will they have a very slow cultural death with pagan culture imposed from above, eventually replacing and displacing their own? And so when you are facing a crisis of existence like that, you dig in to your national tribal identity. And Paul is saying, look, I found my identity right there in my tribal Jewishness to the point that if anything seemed to threaten that identity, if anything seemed to compromise that identity, then I would destroy that thing. So of course, Paul was at odds with the church. He was at war with the church. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. But the amazing thing is the conclusion of this part of his story. He says this, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, 
They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Paul's own life moves from enmity to solidarity with the church. Then we find that Paul is traveling with Barnabas and Titus, and they go up to Jerusalem, and they meet with the leaders in the church. And Paul says, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Remember, circumcision was not just a work of the law, which allowed an individual man to, to attain his own personal salvation. Circumcision was a badge of national identity. It was a cultural boundary marker. It was not about personal salvation, irrespective and independent of any particular community, but rather it was a way of saying, I belong to this specific community. I am a fully fledged member of God's covenant people. It operated something like a birth certificate or a passport. It's how you identified whether someone was in or out of the community. So when Paul says he went to meet privately with the esteemed leaders in Jerusalem, and he went with Titus, who was a Greek, who was uncircumcised, and then he says that none of the leaders in Jerusalem, none of the pillars in the church, not one, compelled Titus to be circumcised. When Paul says this, he's moving the cultural boundary marker. You think membership in God's covenant people is for Jews only? I'm telling you, membership is open to the whole world. Once again, the story he tells moves from exclusion to inclusion. Then Paul talks about a confrontation that he had with Peter or Cephas. This is Christ's disciple, Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew. You live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul says that Cephas used to eat with the Gentiles. Remember, eating together was an ancient Near East symbol of, of reconciliation and restoration of relationship. Even today in certain villages in the Middle East, when, when there's been a feud between two villages, the feud is ended by the ceremonial sort of sitting down of the two sides and eating together from the same table. And, and this symbolism is used all the way through scripture. And, and so Paul is here telling a story of how even someone like Peter could fall back into his old tribalisms. But when we do that, Paul says, you are not acting in accordance with the truth of the gospel. To act in accordance with the truth of the gospel would be to end all of this tribalistic nonsense. And so with every story, Paul and Peter watching the gospel work through both the Jews and the Gentiles and seeing that it is the same God at work in both audiences, 
Paul, no longer persecuting the church, but standing with the church. Titus, no longer excluded from community, but brought in and included in community. Paul, confronting Peter over table fellowship. We don't eat separately at different tables according to our tribes, but we eat together from the same table. Every story he tells has this same movement. Here we are at the heart of the message of Galatians, which Paul is going to keep hammering home, as we'll see in the next week, as, as he talks about us being part of one Abrahamic family, and as he makes his famous announcement that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ. This is why I say none of these stories are just anecdotes which he's using to, to build up to his main argument. These stories are part and parcel of the main argument of Galatians, which is not about, as some have supposed, about whether you attain your own personal salvation by good works or, or by faith. Do, do, you, do you earn it or is it a gift? But about, it's about how we can move away from division toward unity away from enmity toward solidarity, away from exclusion toward inclusion. Paul does not see these things as a, a mere sort of consequence, as a side issue or consequence of the gospel, a sort of an extra. They're not just a side benefit of the gospel announcement, but a part and parcel of what the gospel announcement is all about. And falling back into old tribalisms to defend yourself, to protect yourself, to, to respond to an existential crisis, Paul says, is to abandon the gospel for another gospel, which he says is really no gospel at all. This is our Ariana Peccary, who worked at MSNBC as a producer for seven years. Last year, she quit her position and explained why in an open letter. She said she no longer wanted to be part of something that stokes national division. Even in the middle of a civil rights crisis, she didn't want to be contributing into to something which blocks diversity of thought and content because the networks have an incentive to amplify fringe voices and events. She recalls how one executive and veteran in the news media business had actually taken her aside and said, look, what you have to understand is that we are a cancer and there is no cure. But if you could find one, you would change the world. It's a really interesting insider assessment of the mainstream media. A cancer that blocks diversity of thought and stokes division. Someone from CNN recently came and spoke to the team at my friend's office. And my friend asked the question, innocently, or perhaps not so innocently, how do you balance between giving news that people want, in other words, telling certain groups what they want to hear, and providing news that actually informs and educates? How, how do you strike a balance between those two? And this person from CNN, his response was remarkably honest. He said, look, in the end, we're running a business. Now, he wasn't saying it as a condemnation, just a simple admission about how the business model works. 
And then, of course, there's social media, whose algorithms present our own views back to us and help to entrench us further in our own ways of seeing. In one recent documentary about the effects of social media on our culture, they interviewed people who have been responsible for helping to create the various social media platforms. And they were asked, where do you think all this is heading? Where's social media taking us as a society? And one tech executive said very bluntly, well, civil war. A couple of observations I'd like to make here, and then we'll finish. First of all, I think when we hear these sorts of admissions and condemnations of these institutions coming from within the institutions themselves, it's important to remember that these things are not good or evil in and of themselves. Media and social media are not good or evil in and of themselves. They're just neutral. It just depends on the direction that these things are pointing and how they're being used. They don't have to be a cancer. They don't have to lead us to war. They don't have to put us at each other's throats. And so there are people who choose to remain in these institutions who, who work hard to craft stories which subvert this tendency to divide. So it's not a case of writing these things off, but to see it as a, a creative opportunity for the church, to see how we can take these things and, and turn them to face toward the good and the beautiful and the true. So that's the first thing. We can see this as a creative opportunity. The second, when we talk about something as culturally ubiquitous as the media and social media, something that's so woven into the fabric of our lives, we start to realize that it will require a very, very deep consciousness and awareness of the, the insidious evil that is at work and operating through these mechanisms in order to divide us from each other. And that kind of constant presence of mind, that, that continual alertness and vigilance will be tremendous work at first, even just to be able to discern how and, and when it's happening. So before we can even get to the stage of being able to, to be creative, to turn these things towards something good and true and beautiful, just to be aware of how these things are working in our own lives, it's work itself. But as Wendell Berry puts it, if we are serious about peace, then we must work for it as ardently, seriously, continuously, carefully, and bravely as we have ever prepared for war. That's beautiful and, and, and so right. I think Paul worked far more ardently, seriously, continuously, carefully, and bravely than he ever did when he was at war with the church in all his misplaced pharisaical zeal. And Paul invites us here to, to work more ardently, seriously, continuously, carefully, and bravely than we have ever done for the gospel of peace. So this week, I want to invite you to reflect on your own life, in, in the light of these first two chapters of this letter, how each story that Paul tells is about some sort of reconciliation, some sort of repairing of relationships, of bringing people together. And ask yourself this question. 
if you were to write a brief two chapter biography like Paul, could you fill it with those kinds of stories? Which stories would you tell? <laughs>